Hi, everybody. Thanks for coming. We're going to get started since we have a full panel today and a full room, which is excellent to see. My name is Laura Odato. I'm the Director of Government Affairs at the Cato Institute, and today we're going to be talking about the future of transportation and transportation spending issues. I'm going to briefly introduce our three speakers, and then they will speak in whichever order Randall decides when the time comes. Randall O'Toole is a Cato Institute Senior Fellow working on urban growth, public land, and transportation issues. His analysis of urban land use and transportation issues, including his 2001 book, The Vanishing Automobile and Other Urban Myths, has influenced decisions in cities across the country. In his book, The Best Laid Plans, he calls for repealing federal, state, and local planning laws and proposes reforms that can help solve social and environmental problems without heavy-handed government regulation. Randall's latest book is American Nightmare, How Government Undermines the Dream of Home Ownership. He travels extensively and has spoken about free market environmental issues in dozens of cities. Emily Goff advances conservative solutions to economic challenges by analyzing federal budget, transportation, and agriculture policy issues as a research associate in the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Her research and writing focuses on the debt crisis brought on by federal spending growth, especially in entitlement programs. She also writes about reducing the federal role in transportation in favor of state and local control and in agriculture to alleviate the burden on taxpayers. She's also an analyst for Heritage's popular Federal Budget and Pictures, an annually updated series of downloadable, shareable information graphics on federal spending, debt, and taxes. Last but not least is Scott Bayer, who is a travel writer, now crossing the nation to work on a book about revitalizing major U.S. cities. He is originally from Charlottesville and after high school moved to New York City for several years before beginning his cross-country travel. After that, he began four years of independent research and began writing a book midway through 2012, which he expects to finish in just a couple years. His blog, Big City Spark Plug, includes chapters of his book in progress and regular columns detailing the latest in urban news and ideas. The theme of his writing is that for American cities to improve economically, they must enact reforms that favor good design, deregulation, and growth. And now I will turn the panel over to Randall. Thank you. I can get this up onto the podium. All right, well, I'm the only one who's going to bore you with a PowerPoint show. Uh, <clears throat> I like to have PowerPoint shows that have lots of pictures in them. And you've some of you have probably heard me lecture before about the evils of rail transit. I'm a big rail nut. I have a website that's dedicated to rail passenger train history. I help restore the nation's uh, second most powerful operating steam locomotive. But I'm skeptical of whether rail transit makes any sense in American cities anymore. To me, it's an obsolete technology. And really, I'm not the only one who thinks so. And I'm going to uh, actually show you some video of uh, another speaker who is suspicious about rail transit. Uh, let's see what he says. Supporters of public transit must be willing to share some simple truths that folks don't want to hear. And, and one is this. Uh, you know, I noticed that we're, we're in the Federal Reserve Building, and I'm sure that there have some, been some very highly educated economists who stood up here and made... Um, very highfalutin statements on commodity valuation. I'm going to make mine now. Uh, it's three words. Paint is cheap. Paint is cheap. Rail systems, by contrast, are very expensive. If you take a bus and you paint it a different color, you can call it a special bus. And if you have a special bus, you could then paint a lane on a roadway that the taxpayers have already paid to build, and you call it a busway. 
So you could probably do that with about six cans of paint on the bus and many more for the busway. But you throw in signal preemption, a rather inexpensive technology that, that allows the uh, traffic signals to always or, or usually give the bus a green light, and you can move a lot of people at very, very little cost. Now, some of you may recognize that's Peter Rogoff, who's the Obama administration's uh, administrator in charge of the Federal Transit Administration. That's a speech he gave three years ago, but just last week he gave a similar speech uh, looking at the Washington Metro system and saying, why did we give Washington Metro, uh, why did we give the money to build the Silver Line when they can't afford to run the system they've already got? And this is a problem that he points out uh, later on in, in his speech before the Federal Reserve. So is bus rapid transit a workable option for every corridor? No. There are some corridors with the kind of densities and destinations where only rail makes sense. But bus rapid transit, I will tell you, is a fine fit for a lot more communities than are currently considering it. It's my opinion that outside of New York City, there's nowhere in the United States where rail transit makes sense. That buses can do better, faster, cheaper, safer, just about anything rail transit can do anywhere except for in Manhattan and, and perhaps other parts of New York City. Uh, he doesn't go quite that far, but he does think that a lot of cities are going for rail transit when they shouldn't. And At times like these, he's particularly concerned about the fact that there's a $78 billion backlog for transit, uh, maintenance backlog in this country, and it's almost all rail, obsolete rail systems. And so he says, why are we giving money to transit agencies to build more rail when uh, uh, they can't afford to maintain that what they've got. And what he should have asked is, why are they applying to him for money to build obsolete rail systems? Well, the answer is the way uh, funding for rail transit is structured. Now, most transportation money is structured in, in federal transportation money is structured using what's called formula funds. That would be, for example, if I said, I'm going to give everybody here $5 to get home uh, after this meeting. Uh, just a standard formula. You get $5, and you have your $5, and you decide, okay, I'm going to take the metro, or I'm going to drive, or whatever, and that $5 will contribute to my cost. But some transportation money, and in particular money for rail transit under what's called the New Starts program, is funded differently. I call it the, the bucket of money. Uh, they call it competitive grants. They say, okay, uh, some transportation costs more than others. So instead of giving you each $5, I'm going to give you a percentage of whatever your cost is. I'll give you 80% or 70% of your cost. And all you have to do is tell me what your cost is. Well, pretty soon some of you are going to figure out, let's find the most expensive transportation system we can and charge it to Randall O'Toole because he's going to pay the cost. And that's what cities have done is with this bucket of money, they figured in order for us to get our share, we have to have the most expensive transit, not the most efficient transit. And so the Federal Transit Administration, whose mission calls for providing affordable, efficient transit, publishes this annual report on funding recommendations for new starts, and uh, the transit systems that they recommend funding are extremely expensive and do not do any of the things that they're supposed to do. Now, what are they supposed to do? 
1991, when Congress created the New Starts Fund, they passed, it was part of the ICE-T, Intermodal Surface Transportation Efficiency Act, they said uh, new starts must be justified based on mobility improvements, environmental benefits, cost effectiveness, and operating efficiencies. Well, let's look at cost effectiveness. Not everybody understands what that means. We understand what efficiency is. If, if the benefit of something is greater than the cost, it's efficient. If the benefit of something is less than the cost, it's inefficient. That's simple. But what if you can't estimate the dollar value of a benefit? Uh, the assumption with cost efficiency is that there's some benefit, like how many hours do we save people by building this rail transit line? That's a benefit. We don't know what people's hours are worth, but we can estimate what's the cost per hour, and then we can compare alternatives. We can say, well, what if we build new lanes on a highway and run buses on those lanes? What if we build HOV lanes and run bus rapid transit on those lanes? What if we build a diesel rail line? What if we build an electric rail line? Well, this was exactly the analysis done for a, a corridor in Denver, and this was the cost per hour saved of, built, of these alternatives. Well, which one did Denver pick? They picked electric rail, the most expensive, the least cost-effective one. And the Federal Transit Administration goes along with that. When cities pick the least cost-effective one, they give them the money. So even though the law says they're supposed to be cost-effective, uh, they get money anyway. Another example is the Purple Line, which Maryland wants to build uh, from uh, New Carrollton to Bethesda. Uh, when the FTA rules specifically say that when you measure cost effectiveness in terms of dollars per hour saved, you include the hours saved by the transit riders who ride in your system and the hours saved by the auto drivers who are driving in less congestion because you have better transit, right? So the purple line, they figured that they're going to save transit riders 4 million hours a year. And so they can figure out the cost per hour saved based on that. But it turns out they also estimate that the purple line is going to cost motorists 13 million hours a year. It's not going to relieve congestion. It's going to increase congestion because the light rail line is not like the the metro line is going to be on the streets, it's going to be interfering with traffic, it's going to be crossing streets, they're going to give the light rail signal priority over the uh, cars, so they're going to cost auto drivers 13 million hours a year, they're going to save transit riders only 4 million hours a year, it's a net loss. But when they calculated the cost effectiveness, they simply ignored the cost to the highway users in violation of Federal Transit Administration rules. And they aren't the only one that did this. The red line for Baltimore did this. Uh, Dallas did this for its rail lines. Uh, all over the country, they just ignore the, the congestion costs, and the FTA lets them get away with it. What about environmental benefits? Supposed to build rail transit if it has environmental benefits. Well, the purple line is going to cost a trillion British thermal units, a trillion BTUs of energy to build, and then operating it is actually going to cost 55 million BTUs per day more than if you don't build it. Because you'll get a few people out of their cars and save BTUs there, but operating it costs more BTUs than the BTUs you save by getting people out of their cars. So you end up with a net loss. Uh, and of course, those BTUs are going to be generated by burning fossil fuels. Uh, and that means you're going to have more air pollution. You're going to have more greenhouse gases. And then it says the... the 
Ice-T said operating efficiency. Supposedly, even though rail transit costs more to build, it's more efficient to operate than buses. Except that's not always true, and in fact, it's usually not true. Uh, you look at streetcar lines, and the latest uh, uh, fad is to build streetcar lines. Every single streetcar line in the country costs more to operate per passenger mile than the buses in that same city, by far, two to four times as much per passenger mile. Now, in 2012, Congress passed MAP 21, uh, which is a, a, the new reauthorization of ICE-T. And MAP 21 had a slightly different combination of criteria. They dropped some of the criteria and they added some criteria, but they still had cost effectiveness. Although now they measure, they specifically say as measured by cost per rider. Also, MAP 21 deleted any mention of alternatives. And so even though there are alternatives out there, under the new rules that the Obama administration signed off on in January, all you have to do is calculate the cost per rider. And it doesn't matter if it's $20 or $1,000 or a $1 million. And it doesn't matter if there are other alternatives that are cheaper as long as you calculate the cost per hour. Congratulations, you're cost effective and you meet the Obama administration's criteria for being a fundable project. Uh, they also talk about mobility improvements, but they're funding projects like the, they want to fund projects like the Anaheim streetcar that promises to take almost 300 cars per hour off the road, but the streetcar will occupy as much space as 1,100 cars per hour. So they're actually going to be creating far more congestion, like the Purple Line, than they'll relieve. And they talk about economic development effects. That's a new thing in MAP 21 that wasn't in ICE-T. Supposedly, you build rail transit and you get economic development benefits. That might be true for the Washington Metro, where you've got hundreds of thousands of people using it per day. But when you've got a streetcar line that only has a few hundred riders per day, there's not going to be any benefits. Except my former hometown of Portland, Oregon, claims there is. They published this report called Development-Oriented Transit. They said, we built the streetcar and we generated tons of economic development. For example, in the, what's called the Pearl District of Portland, this area, they built the streetcar and they got $1.33 billion of development, 50 projects, an average of $26 million a project. What they didn't mention in the report is that they gave developers $200 million of subsidies to develop along the streetcar line. Now, just north, or excuse me, just west of the uh, uh, Pearl District is another neighborhood that the streetcar line went through. They didn't give any developers any subsidies in that neighborhood, and they got almost no new development. They got 100 times as much new development where they gave them the subsidies than where they just built the streetcar with no development subsidies. So it was the subsidies that brought the economic development, not the streetcar, and the idea that they're going to get economic development from building streetcars and light rail and things like that is just bogus. So in conclusion, I think... Congress needs to eliminate the competitive grant programs in uh, transportation funding. That includes New Starts. It also includes something called CMAC, and there might be a couple others, but New Starts is a big one. It's about $2 billion a year. I'm not saying spend any less on transit. Go ahead and dedicate that money to transit, but distribute it to the cities and transit agencies using formulas preferably formulas that will encourage transit agencies to be more efficient and carry more transit riders more efficiently 
rather than ones that encourage them to waste as much money as they can so they can get as much free federal dollars. Of course, this is all part of my new report, Paint is Cheaper Than Rails, uh, which you can pick up outside if you haven't already got one, or you can download from the Cato Institute's website. Um, and uh, now, Emily, you want to go next? Hey there, it's good to be here today. Uh, before I moved to DC from Atlanta, can you hear me now? Before I moved to DC from Atlanta, I thought I had left uh, the worst traffic in the world behind, but it turns out that I was wrong. DC's is worse. Um, that observation, which I'm sure you could confirm if you uh, travel on the Beltway or even the orange and blue line in for Virginia, was also confirmed by a recent report from the Texas A&M Transportation Institute, which gave DC that dubious honor of worst traffic congestion, uh, excuse me, worst uh, congested metropolitan area in the country. Uh, they described how drivers here sit in traffic uh, for 67 hours a year, and they waste 32 gallons of fuel just sitting in traffic. Put another way, that's a little over one and a half full work weeks, or a little over $100 a year on, on gas costs. And of course, D.C. isn't alone. Back in Atlanta, where I'm from, it's, it's getting worse there, too, and in other metropolitan areas across the country. Uh, and it's obviously a no-brainer that Worse congestion negatively affects our commercial activity, access to jobs, uh, and of course, road safety. And another transportation uh, event that you're probably familiar with is the recent collapse of one of the spans on the I-5 bridge, uh, bridge in Washington State, uh, which is actually reopening today, I saw on the news. You'll recall right after the, that collapse that lawmakers cited that collapse as justification for dramatic increases in transportation infrastructure spending. And I'll just add a note that, interestingly, that uh, bridge's design was outdated, so there wasn't a safety concern. And if you look a little further in DOT data, uh, you'll see that spending on highways and bridges from all levels of government has actually increased over the past uh, decade or so. I've got data between 2000 and 2008. Um, and in 2008, again, most recent data, 51% of spending at all levels of government, of course, was spent on system rehabilitation. So we're still spending money on maintaining our highways and bridges. Um, and uh, just to further that point, the share of bridges that are considered deficient in some way, either their design is outdated or there is a legitimate safety concern, has actually decreased from 30% in 2001 to a little over 26% in 2009. So these two experiences are worth remembering as we think about how we're going to spend our transportation dollars going forward. Yes, there's certainly work to be done to repair and maintain our network of highways and bridges, uh, but I would say that it doesn't reach the level of national crisis that you hear often from uh, lawmakers inside this building, but also uh, other stakeholders in the transportation community. Uh, we do also have a pressing need to reduce congestion. Uh, there are cost-effective ways to do that, as Randall's just talked about, uh, and there are more wasteful, less, less effective ways to do that. So let's turn our thoughts to the next transportation reauthorization bill. And the burning question there is going to be, how do we pay for all of Congress's needs and wants 
uh, in light of the current federal budget uh, constraints that we face. Within the Highway Trust Fund, we see this as well. Uh, current Congressional Budget Office figures project that if we do a typical six-year highway reauthorization bill, uh, that would mean about an $81 billion shortfall between our revenues uh, and our outlays. And the trust fund, of course, faces near exhaustion by the beginning of fiscal year 2014 when MAP 21, the current bill, expires. Just as your bosses have had to set spending priorities in the overall federal budget, I make the case that they need to do the same thing with regard to the highway trust fund dollars that we have. And so the criteria they should be uh, thinking about when, when uh, writing the next bill and how to spend those dollars is, does this program increase mobility? Does it increase, improve safety uh, and reduce congestion? And are we getting the most bang for our buck uh, with that program? I'm going to touch briefly on uh, the history of the federal highway program to put this all in context, as well as the federal gas tax. The Federal Highway Program and then the Highway Trust Fund uh, were set up in 1956 in legislation then, and the Highway Trust Fund was funded then by a three cents per gallon federal gas tax, um, also called a user fee. Fast forward to, to 1993, when the federal gas tax was last increased, and it uh, was set then at its current level of 18.3 cents per gallon, um, in addition to a 0.1 cent that's used to clean up leaking underground storage tanks. The point to remember about uh, 1956 and today, um, back in 1956, the original intent of this program was to build the interstate highway system, which I would say we accomplished largely by the beginning of 1980s, and then turn the program over to the states to fund and manage. No surprise, this did not happen. The incoming revenue stream uh, in part was very attractive to Congress. And so in subsequent highway bills, Congress expanded the role of the, uh, the, of the federal government in transportation policy, uh, and of course, along with it, federal spending. It began diverting funds from what I would call general purpose roads, so your traditional highway and bridge programs, and also safety, over to non-road, non-highway purposes. Currently, if you look at the, make, the, the distribution of funds, about 84% of the federal gas tax goes to the highway account, um, and the remaining 16% is diverted over to the mass transit account. Let me talk a little bit about a few trust fund diversions. Uh, the first within the highway account are the transportation alternatives. Uh, MAP 21, the current law, requires states to set aside 2% of their formula funding uh, for these activities, and they include things like bicycle and nature paths, sidewalks, uh, scenic overlooks, ferry boats, things that you wouldn't typically think about uh, when you're uh, looking at reducing congestion. Um, just by way of example, a few states, uh, Pennsylvania, for fiscal year 2013 alone, this current fiscal year, uh, is required to set aside $27.2 million, Texas, nearly $78 million, and West Virginia, simply because the ranking member from the TNI committee is from there, uh, about $7 million. These activities, sidewalks, bicycle paths, um, are not bad in and of themselves. But my point is that they are clearly not federal priorities. Um, and some states uh, would rather spend that money on more pressing needs in their highways and bridges if given the option to do so. Uh, MAP 21 did offer a glimmer of hope, in my view, in that it took some eligibility away, some activities out, such as transportation museums and um, uh, scenic and historic easements. And my case is that we should go further in the next transportation reauthorization bill. 
either further restricting the activities that are eligible or better yet, eliminating this program completely uh, and letting states spend that money how they would best uh, spend it. The largest diversion from the Highway Trust Fund is to mass transit. As Randall was discussing, this includes bus rapid transit, electric rail, uh, and streetcars. Now the nature with transit to remember, and he alluded to this, is that there's the lure of federal matching dollars to build the transit system. And then states and state and local taxpayers find themselves subsidizing the cost of operating it, much less capital uh, improvements uh, down the road once the federal dollars have come and gone. And that's because transit often can't stand on its own two feet. The uh, Washington Metro is, is no different. One of our visiting fellows, Wendell Cox, has written extensively on transit. And he describes that despite decades of these subsidies, uh, which started from the federal gas tax back in the early 1980s, transit hasn't lived up to its promises. And I'll, I'll talk about two. First is congestion. Uh, it hasn't gotten better. It's gotten worse. Um, in the country's 51 major metropolitan areas, uh, greater traffic congestion has led to a 125% increase in the peak period travel times. And this is data between 1983 and 2010. Transit further hasn't even maintained its share of urban travel. Another promise that transit uh, supporters made was that transit would improve access to jobs among low-income workers. But other than those that are, uh, don't have a car and are what we would consider captive to transit, and I consider myself captive sometimes, I don't have a car here, I do walk to work. Um, other than those who are captive to transit, uh, low-income workers tend to rely on cars just the same as all other employees uh, in these metropolitan areas. It's about 83% in both cases. Transit, like the Transportation Alternatives Program, is not a national program. And Wendell's work shows that it's largely concentrated in just six legacy cities. And they are, uh, for your edification, Boston, Chicago, New York, Philadelphia, San Francisco, and then here in Washington, D.C. No surprise that these cities have dense populations, high employment rates, and um, some of the best paying jobs. So contrary to the promises that we made with transit, current policy actually ends up subsidizing the commutes of often more affluent workers coming into the city core, like here in DC, um, rather than increasing mobility to jobs among low-income workers, like a car um, and less congested roads could. And another point to keep in mind with uh, the, both transits and the transportation alternatives is that the motorists who are paying the federal gas tax into the Highway Trust Fund, essentially funding these two programs, aren't getting what they're paying into the system. They're not benefiting from that, from that payment. And over time, these diversions away from general purpose roads lead to deterioration on the roads and bridges and then worse congestion. Uh, you don't have to look very far to see why motorists, um, there, there's skepticism in raising the federal gas tax because there's this disconnect between the people who are funding the system and benefiting from it. Motorists would, right, would rightly ask, how would a gas tax hike benefit me? So our question becomes, where do we go from here? Heritage's long-term recommendation is to ultimately devolve the federal transportation, excuse me, the federal highway program. Um, what this means is gradually decreasing the federal gas tax, leaving states with that taxing authority, uh, and then turning over all but a small part of it over to the states to fund and manage. But for practical purposes for the next transportation reauthorization bill, um, let me just talk about a couple reforms that could be included. The first is um, more a matter of principle, and it's to end the general fund bailouts of the Highway Trust Fund. 
These cash transfers worsen the federal budget deficit, uh, and they excuse more federal spending on local priorities, such as I've already laid out with the bicycle paths and, and nature walk, nature paths. And they give your bosses another pass on making spending priorities. What this means is actually limiting spending to available trust fund revenues for the time being. This means looking closely at where spending is going now and redeploying wasteful spending right now over to more efficient uses of those dollars. Uh, to programs that actually reduce congestion and increase mobility. And this is also where I would caution you to avoid so-called creative uh, pay-fors and funding schemes. And these include using revenue from increased energy access um, or setting up something like a national infrastructure bank uh, to so-called, uh, to, to allegedly leverage dollars. The former is good policy, the, the energy access, um, but I make the case that this shouldn't be used to pay for new spending elsewhere. Um, and then the latter, the infrastructure banks, is only going to wind up hurting taxpayers in the long run and also duplicate um, some of the programs we already have in existence. And my second big recommendation is to end the highway trust fund diversions, alternatives, and transit, uh, and redeploy those money to road and bridge programs. If we can gradually phase out, or at the very least, scale back spending on these two uh, big programs, it would free up billions of dollars each year without raising gas taxes or any other tax. Um, that could be spent on highway expansion uh, or bridge maintenance projects. And I'm going to drill down on that last point. Um, in the next highway bill, this would simply mean not reauthorizing transportation alternatives and instead apportioning that money through the normal formula funding. And, uh, and remember here that the justification is that these are truly local, not federal priorities. And as for transit, I recognize this can't happen overnight, um, so our recommendation is to gradually phase it out by not incurring new federal transit obligations or giving out new grants, uh, fulfill our existing obligations, and then gradually at the same time transfer that money from the transit account that was diverted back over to the highway account to be used there. Uh, this gradual approach would give states, of course, time to plan. And this could also be a really good thing for transit. Um, not only will we be returning the highway trust fund spending to its original intent, um, but it really could encourage efficiencies in transit that would lower costs and improve service. So if states are and localities are responsible for the full cost of a transit pro project or they're sharing it through a PPP, public-private partnership, uh, they're going to be incentivized to opt for the most cost-effective and efficient form of transit. Uh, they might choose bus rapid transit over a streetcar. So the, the competition in transit um, and introducing the private sector into it could really reverse the cost escalations that have happened in recent years uh, because of transit's monopoly and immense federal subsidies. Uh, and as I said, the, the riders and the taxpayers will actually benefit from improved services. You'd see uh, less detours from responsible fiscal uh, excuse me, from responsible spending, such as the million-dollar bus shelter in Arlington, if anyone's familiar with that, that doesn't even keep people dry or warm. Um, and systems like Metro could see their costs reduce uh, and it also improve service. I'm just recalling a Washington Post article that uh, recently that um, described customers who were testing new fare gates were using a key fob or their, their credit card, and one writer was quoted as saying, this is great and all, but what I'd really prefer are escalators that work. So let me close by restating that uh, given our limited highway trust fund dollars and federal budget constraints in the big picture, uh, members of the TNI committee and of course the Senate EPW committee and your bosses in their respective roles 
should, I argue, prioritize getting the most value out of our federal budget, uh, excuse me, federal gas tax dollars in order to realize gains in reducing uh, congestion, improving mobility and safety, uh, all while taking steps that give states and localities more flexibility and control in how they spend their transportation dollars, uh, simultaneously reducing the federal role. I'll close with that and take questions later. Hello. I want to begin by introducing myself uh, because none of you have any idea who I am and because I'm not representing any particular organization, so you have no idea what positions on transportation policy I may take. Uh, my name is Scott Beyer, and I'm a writer working on several different projects. Uh, these include a completed travel memoir that I'm scared to take to a publisher since some of its stories may be just a little embarrassing to my parents. I run a blog that deals with urban issues called Big City Spark Plug, and, uh, and, and I'm tr now traveling to write a book about the revitalization of U.S. cities through market urbanism. The phrase market urbanism is not one I invented, but will be advocating and hope to take mainstream. It proposes the revitalization of America's cities through a series of market solutions ranging from lower taxes, deregulation, respect for property rights, service privatization, and minimal, highly targeted government investments that encourage economic growth. Fundamental to market urbanism is also, is also the belief in small, localized government. All these mentalities are ones that, that are now depressingly absent in our cities, and as I'll argue in the book, explains why so many of them have become bastions for poverty, unemployment, business flight, lack of affordability, uh, the social and the social decline that a lot of these things lead to. So the, the inspiration for the book dates to my teens and early 20s, when I was living in New York City and over a series of summers saved money to backpack the nation. And during this, I traveled through a combination of hitchhiking and Greyhound bus rides, and uh, even once by hopping a CSX which you don't need to be a transportation wonk to realize was not the quickest or the most comfortable, but was the cheapest way for me to get from Jacksonville to New Orleans overnight. And during this, I ended up crashing the couches and hopping in the cars of some very eccentric characters. So while my travels began as somewhat of a cross-country joyride with myself as this kind of Jack Kerouac-like figure, I found that eventually they became more serious. As I traveled from city to city, I began growing curious about urban America's problems, such as why they had all this poverty and unemployment, why their infrastructure was inadequate, why their downtowns were dead, why their worst neighborhoods appeared like they were from the third world. I began researching these problems, and soon this turned into a full-time job, extending four years and inspiring the book that I'm now writing about market urbanism. 
Now, had you asked me when first entering this research how I thought cities could improve, I would have regurgitated to you all the buzz phrases that now compile the smart growth mantra. This is the opposite mantra of market urbanism, since it proposes more central planning. And to your average smart growther, if only we had more planning, which is to say if only we had a more powerful and activist federal government, suddenly our cities would become these oases of density and economic growth. According to this thinking, they would all have comprehensive light rail networks, and, and there would be targeted incentives to put dense housing around each stop. Every major city would be connected by high-speed rail. Since the feds would ram through a comprehensive nationwide system the way they once did for interstates, the main streets of every downtown would get their own federally funded streetcar, so this thinking goes. And the feds would encourage regional planning bodies that would have more, more of a teeth of enforcement than MPOs now do, laying the groundwork for more urban growth boundaries, more form-based design codes, and more inclusionary zoning. But the problem with me back then, and the problem with smart growthers today, is that they are mistaken in, think, in thinking the federal government would actually do all this, or that they even should. In fact, they are mistaken for thinking that the federal government even helps cities, period. Rather, it sets them back in two significant ways. The first is that the federal government redirects cities' tax revenue away from actual construction and into various alternative goals, not all of them well-intentioned. The second is that the construction the federal government does fund is often wildly out of step with what cities actually need. And these two problems are no more pronounced than our topic for today, transportation. So, the most glaring example of how cities lose money for transportation is that when they send it to the federal government, they see less in return. Last year, Nicole Jolinas pointed this out for City Journal by citing a tax foundation study determining that from 1981 to 2005, New York City got 85 cents for every dollar it gave to the federal government. This, she explained, is one amongst many reasons why the city has trouble completing major transportation projects. Quote, for big projects like the Second Avenue subway, she writes, the federal funds we get are bought with our money and then some. Yet New York City is not an aberration. A 2009 New York look by the New York Times and how Obama's stimulus bill was, was used determined that the 100 largest metro areas were getting less than half of the transportation money, despite compiling two-thirds of the national population and an even larger share of economic output. Yet this merely underlay a long-time trend in which largely rural and suburban states get more per capita federal spending than urban ones. It is particularly pronounced for transportation funding, according to University of Mission economist David Albuie. In a study this year, he determined that state repre states represented by Republicans, aka states with lower densities, receive more in federal transportation grants. Another study in 2009, published in the journal called Transportation, determined that in respect to the Federal Highway Trust Fund, quote, states that are less urban and better represented on the four key congressional committees 
generally benefit from redistribution. The reason, the reason why this occurs is probably not a mystery to a lot of people in this room. Urban areas tend to generate higher incomes and dividends, which means they are taxed more per capita, only to see that money funneled into poorer areas like Mississippi and Alabama. It is also due to having a political system that grants senatorial representation based on state lines rather than a per capita basis. This guarantees that funding will not, will not be divided per capita either. And again, this is particularly so for transportation, which is often funded at the, at the federal level through a pork barrel process that puts a premium on political influence. So the lesson here is that if we continue funneling money to the federal government for transportation, these structural factors within our political and our economic system will just ensure that the money continues going disproportionately to states that have lower incomes, lower densities, and lower populations. In other words, those are the places without major cities in general. But those aren't the only ways that the federal government has stripped cities of the capacity to build transportation. The Davis-Bacon Act requires prevailing wages to be paid on federal construction projects. And in President Obama's first week of office in 2009, he required project labor agreements, which are prearranged union deals, to be used for all federal contracts exceeding $25 million. Both of these measures have been found to increase construction costs. The federal government also brings with it various environmental and aesthetic requirements as a condition for funding, which again, increases costs and it generally slows the approval process for local transportation projects. In fact, anyone who knows the nature of government knows that sending construction funding through multiple levels of bureaucracy will strip money from actual construction in favor of funding the bureaucracy itself. Right now, federal transportation policy epitomizes this concept. We collect money from taxpayers at the local level. We entrust it to various agencies and politically driven congressional legislators who only send it back exactly to where it came from with a new, more onerous set of guidelines. In what way does this resemble a more efficient system than if, local, than if localities just kept their own transportation money? The second problem with federalizing transportation policy, which I'll cover briefly because I don't think I have would have time to do it in depth, is that oftentimes even when transportation does get built by the federal government, it is in a manner that is arbitrary and insensitive to local needs. The track record on this dates to, to post-World War II urban renewal, when federal funds were used to ram highways through, up through otherwise cohesive city neighborhoods while subsidizing suburban sprawl. And it has continued over the years with a wide range of boondoggles assisted by federal funding, such as the Detroit people mover that moves no people, the bridge to nowhere in Alaska, the California high-speed rail project that will kick off by linking the strategic corridors of Fresno and Merced, and the other high-speed rail between Tampa and Orlando that was thankfully turned down by a responsible governor. 
This misguidedness continues today through the Highway Trust Fund, which mandates that portions of gas tax revenue get spent on bike paths and other alternative forms of transit, whether or not those are needed in given areas. And by the way, in most areas, except for I think the, the aforementioned six transit legacy cities, they really don't, those measures really don't assist in alleviating congestion. So the folly of this one-size-fits-all blueprint, which is undoubtedly, I think, we can, we can agree is an attempt by the federal government to dictate how land policy and localities grow, was unwittingly summarized by Congr Congressman Earl Blumenauer. In a Streets blog interview several years ago, he was complaining that his attempts to ensure that the 2009 transportation bill had more bike, bike lane funding had been thwarted by his colleagues from the southern states. Now, of course, Blumenauer represents Portland, where nobody has ever met a bike lane they don't like. But it is absurd that Blumenauer, while living in the bubble, better known as Portlandia, should expect that congressmen from largely rural South Carolina and Georgia would ever want bike, bike lane funding to his extent. And it would be equally absurd if those Southern congressmen decided bike lanes weren't appropriate for Portland. This just demonstrates how different regions and their different cultures ultimately yield different transportation needs. So why can't local autonomy be granted in determining them? And I'll end with an anecdote that shows how misguided having a centralized transportation policy can be, not only from the federal level, but in this case from the state level. And it concerns my hometown, which is uh, Charlottesville, Virginia. For those who do not know, Charlottesville is about two hours west of DC. And if any of you are looking for a good weekend getaway, that is the spot to do it. And we will gladly accept your tourist dollars. Charlottesville has not only a creative university-driven culture, but it has exquisite natural features and defined by expansive farmland that sets up against the, ba the backdrop of the Blue Ridge Mountains. Residents understa there understand that these natural features are fundamental assets to our culture and our economy and our appeal. And much of the reason why we regularly rank among America's best and most livable cities and have become a magnet for outsiders. But bureaucrats in Richmond who don't live in Charlottesville also don't seem to recognize these assets. In recent years, VDOT has provided funding for two major now approved road projects in Charlottesville. One cuts from downtown right through the heart of our Central Park, and the other is a Western Bypass. The bypass will not only cut through a chunk of our growth area, thus requiring substantial eminent domain, but through a large part of our natural area, and even through the side of a mountain. VDOT has determined this is an important way to move northern freight traffic through central Virginia to the state's more industrial southwestern portion. There has also been substantial lobbying for these two roads by developers in the northern suburbs who want their customers to have better access to UVA, which is the local university, and downtown. But at the city and county level, there have been numerous studies and even master plans drawn 
that have determined better ways to do this. A number of crowded interchanges along our existing transportation spine could be widened. Certain others could be converted into underpasses rather than grade-level interchanges. And there are also several discombobulated nearby roads that could be connected to the point that they form parallel roadways. So these have been determined to cost a fraction of the two major roadways in money, in displacement, and destruction of the natural area, and would move nearly the same amount of traffic. Dave Norris, a recent Charlottesville mayor, told me in an interview that if the $278 million combined costs for these two projects, which will come substantially from VDOT, not to mention some federal funding as well, had instead been provided as a block grant to be worked out at city and county discretion using a regional transportation authority, and by that I, I do not mean the, MP, the, the federal MPO that we now have, which has advocated for these roads, then local political sentiment would have steered us towards those cheaper options. And with the extra money, we would have addressed several other long-time transportation needs, from repairing a structurally deficient downtown bridge to upgrading another, synchronizing our traffic lights, improving our underfunded bus system, and addressing not a contrived, but a very legitimate need for infrastructure, for bike infrastructure in a university town. But instead of spreading these benefits across the region in a way fundamental to its needs, we are building two roads that will benefit certain areas of the county and that the rest of the city hates. So our, our local political bodies approve them under the same Faustian instincts that lead many loca localities to approve projects from above that they don't really want because we feared losing the allocation. And while this can be a good reason for approving a project, it doesn't guarantee the project is the wisest thing to begin with. Rather, it just shows the often misdirected sway that larger political bodies have once they've got the carrot to dangle. When I was thinking of this, these two projects on my ride up here by Amtrak, which is a lesson unto itself in federal transportation wrongdoing, I was reminded of another statement made to me in an interview with a UVA economics, urban economics professor. He said, quote, whether you believe in building transportation at the federal, the state, the regional, or the municipal level, you have to agree on one thing. The people who decide on a given project must be the people who are closest to it and will ultimately use it. Otherwise, you'll get a lot of very mistaken and misplaced infrastructure. Unquote. To me, this seems self-evident. Unfortunately, it is the opposite of the way we now do things at the federal level. But a return to a more localized approach would better accomplish this by steering money back into localities, which would be particularly helpful also for big cities. And by replacing one-size-fits-all transportation blueprints with local ones that better fit local needs. For these reasons, I would encourage this group of congressional staffers to consider a more local approach to transportation. These could include block grants from federal or state governments that have far less centralized oversight than funding does now. Or it could mean the sounder, if less politically likely approach, of simply reducing the size of federal and state transportation agencies 
so that localities could keep the money for themselves. Either way, I'm advocating for a mentality for transportation policy that nowadays you're sooner to hear at your neighborhood farmer's market. Go local. Thanks. <laughs>